Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word, and as we try to listen carefully, as you speak to us, I pray that you will show us your wisdom, your power, and your great love. Amen. Last week we began looking at 1 Corinthians, and we learned that as he writes this letter, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that he knows very well. So he's able to deal with the specifics of their situation, and there is lots for him to deal with. These men and women live in a busy, prosperous city. It's a city that's used to impressive leaders, powerful speakers, The citizens of Corinth were told by historians were obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. That is the culture around this church. And it turns out the church itself doesn't look very different from the culture around it. The church pretty much shares the same outlook as the world around it. It's living by the same standards. And last time, Paul mentioned one of the main problems that produces. The church is becoming divided. The cause of the division is they're quarreling over which preacher is most impressive. And the motivation seems to be if a certain group can get their man recognized as the best, then probably they'll get some prestige for themselves by being associated with that leader. That's the situation. How is Paul going to deal with it? Well, in the last verse we looked at last time, Paul said he wanted nothing to do with that kind of personality contest. One of the groups in Corinth was trying to back him as their main man. But Paul's response is to say, I am not aiming to be impressive. In fact, Paul said, I go out of my way not to preach the gospel with wisdom and eloquence lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's Paul's response to rivalry in the church. He says it empties the cross of its power. But what does he mean by that? Well, he's going to explain what he means in verses 18 to 25 of chapter 1. These verses are about the cross. And what they teach us is just as crucial today in our situation, as it was in Corinth 2,000 years ago. If you haven't found the page yet, it's page 1144 in the Green Church Bibles and 1170 in the larger print. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, 
God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is God's word. I said these verses are about the cross. More specifically, verse 18 says they're about the message of the cross. So not just what happened on the cross, but what it means. So we need to take a moment to remember what the message of the cross is. We're talking specifically about Jesus' death on a cross. There were thousands of people who died by crucifixion. But the New Testament insists that Jesus' death on a cross was unique. Everyone else who died on a cross just died. But before Jesus went to the cross, he said he was going there to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus claimed that his life was not going to be taken from him. He was going to give it for us. He claimed to be God's son come to earth to solve our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is that we are rebels against God who deserve eternal punishment for our rebellion. Jesus said he came to take that punishment for us. As he hung on the cross, it would be poured out on him instead of us. And by believing and trusting in what he did for us, we can be saved from punishment. We can receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. That is what Paul means when he talks about the message of the cross. And in these verses, he tells us three things about this message. First, in verse 18, the message of the cross divides the world in two. Now, from a human point of view, there are many different ways of dividing up the world. In New Testament times, the Romans saw the world as divided into Romans and barbarians. That was everyone else who wasn't a Roman. The Jews saw it as divided into Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. Others saw the main division as being between slaves and free people, or male and female. You could go on and on. At the minute, we might think the main division in Britain is between leavers and remainers. Historically, in this country, people talked about working class, middle class, and upper class. Those were the class divisions that we worked by. Maybe at election time, we still vote in terms of those kinds of divisions. But when the World Cup comes around, we forget about class differences and we divide up by our national allegiances. Last week I was given a very nice England rugby top. It fitted me perfectly, but I just couldn't wear it. Elijah came in the room and said, what have you got that on for? 
If you're my size and you'd like it, you can see me afterwards. We divide the world up in lots of different ways. But as far as the New Testament is concerned, there is only one division that matters. It's the division that is caused by the cross of Jesus Christ. Here in our passage, verse 18 says, The message of the cross divides the world into just two groups. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. No other division really matters that much. Ten billion years from now, it really won't matter who we cheered for in the World Cup. It really won't matter whether we supported leave or remain. But it will matter immensely whether we accepted or rejected the message of the cross. Ten billion years from now, that will determine whether we're experiencing never-ending destruction or never-ending salvation. The message of the cross divides the world in two. How we respond to that message has eternal consequences for each one of us. And Paul adds something else in verse 18. Those who reject the message reject it because they consider it to be foolishness. Those who accept the message find it to be the power of God. That's what Paul is going to explain in the rest of this passage. In verses 19 to 21 he says, The message of the cross defies human pride. And if we're going to understand what he's saying here, We have to take a step back for a moment and think about the cross. Because the way most of us view the cross today is very, very different from how it was viewed in New Testament times. In our kitchen at home, we have a cross that was given to us as a wedding present. It was handmade by a friend of ours from smooth clay, or at least the clay is smooth now. It's shaped with smooth curves, it's multicolored, painted with a little dove on the front. It's a piece of art. And to my uneducated artistic eyes, I think it's quite a nice piece of art. Maybe you wear a gold or silver cross around your neck or on your lapel. And the very fact that we are comfortable wearing crosses or putting crosses on our wall, the fact that I just called a cross nice, that shows we're a long way from the first century view of the cross. In the first century, the cross was not a symbol of hope and comfort. It was ugly. It was a symbol of brutal, gruesome death. Crucifixion was the most shameful way to die. It was a degrading death and it was reserved for slaves, terrorists and outcasts. Crucifixion was so disgusting that the Romans would not use it on their own citizens. Except in highly unusual circumstances. Crucifixion was for people who had no place in respectable society. 
So if you want to get a sense of what the cross meant, ask yourself this. Would you hang a guillotine up on your wall? Would you wear a little electric chair around your neck? How about some little atomic mushroom clouds for earrings? Would you put a model gas chamber on the dashboard of your car? You probably wouldn't do any of those things because those are grotesque symbols of ugly death. And that's what the cross meant in the first century. No one would have used the cross as a fashion accessory. Any more than we would use an electric chair as a fashion accessory today. And so when Paul and others said to first century people, come and put your hope in a cross, come and trust a crucified saviour, When the apostles came with that message, it's hard to think of anything more likely to provoke scorn from their audience. You want us to do what? Are you crazy? Do you think we're crazy? You want us to put our hope in a symbol of hopelessness. You want us to worship someone who died as the scum of the earth. And today, even though crosses have become fashion accessories, even though the sight of a cross is no longer shocking to us, the message of the cross still turns many people off. You're telling me that pathetic event is my only hope? You're telling me my eternal destiny hinges on my response to an execution outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. You expect me to believe that's the way to know God. Whether we're talking about the first century or today, it doesn't matter. Many, many people find the message of the cross to be simply foolishness. And so if we had been God, we probably wouldn't have done things that way, would we? Why give people a saviour they'll turn their noses up at? Why not give them a superman to trust in? Why not call them to a saviour with a golden crown? That would appeal to people. Why call them to a crown of thorns and an ugly cross? Why call them to trust a man so bloody and broken he can't even lift up his head? A man who died among wasters and criminals. That's not a great advertising strategy, is it? It's like saying, come and join us as we worship at the foot of the electric chair. So why did God do it this way? Did he get things wrong in choosing this as the way of salvation? Did he misjudge the way people were going to react to the cross? No. Paul says God did things this way on purpose. 
He did it knowing full well how people would react to it. Why? Well, let's think about sin. What is at the very root of all human sin? It's pride. Isn't that what we find in the very first sin? Right at the start of the Bible, God says to the first man and woman, I have surrounded you with beauty. I have lavished my creativity on this wonderful place for you. Dripping with fruitfulness, I have created a place for you to flourish. Enjoy it. Make what you can of it. Develop it. Rule over it. Just avoid that one tree over there. You must not eat from that one tree, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God gave Adam and Eve a whole world of yes and just one tree of no. And how did the man and woman respond to that? In their pride, they believed God was denying them something that was good for them. They decided the forbidden fruit was actually something they ought to have. They also believed that God was lying to them. That eating the fruit wouldn't really bring death. And on top of all that, they wanted to take God's place. They wanted to be the arbitrators of what was good and what was evil. At the root of their sin was pride. They would not humble themselves under God's good and loving authority. They wouldn't trust that he knew best. And as we think about that, can you now begin to see why God chose to bring salvation through a cross? Through something that so offends our ideas of how salvation ought to come. God has worked so that the only way to receive his salvation is by humbling ourselves. Setting aside our pride and trusting that he does know best. And so here in verse 19, Paul quotes God's Old Testament promise through the prophet Isaiah. A promise made hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross. God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Through Isaiah, God said, I will bring salvation and I will do it in a way that's an affront to human wisdom. I will do it in a way that seems foolish to human intelligence. And that is exactly what the cross has done. Verse 20 mentions three types of expert. And in each case, the implied question is, did they, do they, with their human experience and expertise, manage to foresee the cross? Today, do they point us to the cross, these experts? Do they recognize that this is the only hope for humanity? Did the wise person do that? Think of all the solutions 
over the centuries that wise people have proposed, trying to solve humanity's fundamental problems, all the big theories that human wisdom has come up with. Did communism point us to the cross? Did capitalism? What about democracy? Sometimes we act like democracy can solve the world's problems. What they need in those war-torn countries is democratically elected government. That'll end all their troubles. And I'm not slating democracy, but democracy doesn't point anyone to the cross of Jesus Christ. The best attempts of human wisdom will not lead people ever to God's salvation. Human wisdom doesn't give the cross any place in its thinking. The cross doesn't even factor when human wisdom tries to solve humanity's problems. What about the teacher of the law? In this case, Paul is thinking specifically of the Jewish leaders of his own day. And remember, he used to be one of them. He was at the top of the class. Did those teachers of the law have any place for the cross? Absolutely not. In their wisdom, they expected a Savior who'd start by patting them all on the back and then promote them to his very highest positions because they were cut above everyone else and the Savior would recognize that. The teachers of the law were just as proud as everyone else. They saw no need of a Savior to die for them. Surely they were in credit with God. They didn't need a savior to come and pay for their sin. And today, when religion doesn't have as its very center the cross of Jesus Christ, then it just leads to pride about what we human beings can make of ourselves. How much of today's religious wisdom is just a self-improvement program telling us that we can be great. But religion without the cross doesn't lead anyone to God's salvation. Now Paul mentions the philosopher of this age. That can be translated as the debater of this age. It's referring to those who are very skilled at persuading others. Personalities, people who can build up a big following by the way they talk. YouTube is swarming with those kind of people. And they might have millions of followers who sit around listening to their wisdom. But how many of them are going to lead people to the cross? Few, if any. It doesn't play a part in their wisdom. And we might say, well, hold on. If none of those experts think the cross is the answer, doesn't that mean we should maybe move on from the cross? Doesn't that mean the cross isn't what we need after all? Paul says, no, don't you see? God chose the cross precisely because the experts will ignore it or scoff at it. God did it this way to bring judgment on the proud. 
He did it this way to show even the best of human wisdom, if it's not willing to humble itself, it's always going to miss God's salvation. So long as we insist that we know how things should work, we will never benefit from what God has done. And that was God's intention. Look again at the middle of verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. That means God planned that those who insist on their own wisdom will always reject the cross as foolishness. And so if you're here and you don't believe the message of the cross, if it seems foolish to you, don't be too quick to congratulate yourself on being smart and sophisticated. Let these verses at least give you a moment's pause. Because the Bible says your unbelief is not due to higher intelligence on your part. The Bible says you fail to believe because your pride makes it impossible for you to see the truth. God is defying your pride. The only way to see and receive the truth is to stop claiming that you know best and instead bow to God's Savior, the Savior who brought salvation God's way. That is the only path to life and forgiveness and hope. When we read the words wisdom and foolishness here, it's important to realize Paul is not saying reject wisdom and embrace foolishness. It's not what he's saying. He's saying so long as we're looking at reality through our own prideful glasses, we're never going to understand what true wisdom and foolishness are. When true wisdom is set right in front of us, we'll laugh and think it's foolishness. But if we'll take off those prideful glasses, we will see God's wisdom. We'll see the foolishness of human wisdom that rejects the cross. And we will be saved. That's the point of verses 22 to 25. The message of the cross delivers God's salvation to those who accept the message. Back in verse 18, Paul said the cross is the power of God. And he comes back to that in these last verses. Verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 
We've seen recently in Matthew's Gospel how the Jewish leaders demanded signs from Jesus. Now, if they'd been asking with open hearts and open minds, there would not have been a problem. But their attitude was, go on, Jesus, do something spectacular for us. Impress us if you can. They were like judges on X Factor or The Apprentice, sitting there in their big chairs with their arms folded. They would decide whether Jesus deserved their trust. And Don Carson says this about the Jewish leaders. He says, The demand for signs that we see in them becomes the prototype of every condition human beings raise as a barrier to being open to God. I will devote myself to this God if he heals my child. I will happily become a Christian if God proves himself to me. I will acknowledge Jesus as Lord if he performs the kind of miracle on demand that removes all doubt. In every case, I am assessing him. He is not assessing me. I am not coming to him on his terms. Rather, I am stipulating the terms that he must accept if he wants the privilege of my company. Those who come to God with that attitude will find the message of the cross to be unsatisfactory. And they will never benefit from it. Paul goes on, Greeks look for wisdom. Greeks is being used here as another term for Gentiles, non-Jews. They want to be able to explain everything. They have their scientific theories, they have their philosophical categories, And if God is going to get a hearing from them, well, he'd better fit into their theories and their categories. He'd better meet the standards of their wisdom. Those who come to God on those terms will find the message of the cross to be unsatisfactory. Because it defies their theories and their categories. And they will never benefit from it. So who will benefit from it? Those whom God has called. Back in verse 21, these same people were described as those who believe. So which is it? Are they saved because they believe the message of the cross? Or are they saved because God called them? The answer is both. We are all called to set aside our pride and believe what God says. In fact, we are commanded to do that. We have no excuse for choosing to reject God's word. And when we do come and believe, we have no reason to be proud. Because as we look back over our shoulder, we realize we were just as proud and just as blind as everyone else. We didn't figure this out on our own. If God had not called us to himself, we'd still be thinking we were too wise and too sophisticated to put our hope in a cross.
And notice how inclusive this group is, those who are called and who believe. It's made up of both Jews and Greeks. The message of the cross is not just for those with a high IQ. You don't need a degree to understand the message of the cross. It's not just for the rich. It's not just for one people group. It's not just for one particular kind of personality. The message of the cross is for all without distinction. The young, the old, the healthy, the sick, the successful and the struggling. It's for all those who will humble themselves at the foot of the cross and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Those men, those women, those children find that through the message of the cross, God delivers his salvation. They discover that broken body was God's means of bringing healing to a world broken by sin. They discover that ugly cross was God's means of undoing the mess made by human pride. They discover the cross is our only way out of that cycle of greed and self-promotion and hatred and bitterness and war and exploitation. The cross can achieve what human wisdom could never achieve. When we look at the cross with hearts that are willing to bow and eyes that are willing to see, then we see all the brutality and the shame of our own sin. It's displayed there in the brutality and the shame of the cross. And it's paid for. It's dealt with. When you and I humble ourselves enough to see that, then the cross becomes a beautiful thing. Because we see it was for us. It was for me. The blood and the pain was a work of love for you and me. By his wounds we are healed. We see that only God cared enough to do that for us. Only God could do it. When we humble ourselves, then we begin to see. And then we're glad to be known as men and women and children of the cross. Who cares if we're laughed at? Who cares if we're despised? The world looks at the cross and says, if that's what God did, then he's foolish and weak. But we look at the cross and we can say, in that case, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Don't let your pride stop you trusting the message of the cross. Don't be ruled by your pride. Don't insist that God has to do things in line with your ideas. 
Instead of folding your arms and waiting for God to impress you, get over your pride and trust in what he has done for you. Don't let your pride take you to hell because the cross wasn't what you were hoping for. And those of us who are Christians, we're about to share this meal that reminds us of the cross. We have things here to look at. We have things to touch. And that's to remind us the cross wasn't just an idea. It was a real event. Jesus shed real blood. His body really was brutalized and broken. But in those hours, God himself was working powerfully for our salvation. So as we gather around this table in a moment, let's remember this is our only hope. The crucified Savior is our only anchor, now and forever. We will never move on to some higher philosophy or some better way to know God. The message of the cross is the power of God. So before we eat and drink, let's respond to God's word as we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.